focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters, Han Dan and Chung Sebom. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. We're going to start things off uh, with some news here in Korea. A 3.7 magnitude earthquake uh, striking off the waters of Kangwa Island, uh, this northwest of Incheon after midnight. This of course, prompting residents to make calls, take to social media to find out more about the tremors, especially when it's so late at night here. Uh, Tana, what do we know so far about this latest earthquake? Right. The quake struck water some 25 kilometers off Kanghua County at around 1.30 a.m. at a depth of 19 kilometers. One afterquake hit the area about an hour later at around 2.30 a.m. at a magnitude of 1.2. Some 100 reports were filed to authorities, while many rushed to the social media to make posts about the tremor, but no casualties or damage have been reported. It's certainly not the strongest quake South Korea has seen. In fact, it's only about 80th strongest since Korea started compiling related data in 1978. But this came as quite a shock to much of South Korea as it jolted the capital region, which is quite rare. The last time we saw a similar level quake was four years ago when a 3.7 magnitude quake jolted areas near the Pyongyang Island in the West Sea in 2019. And back then, the tremor wasn't palpable as it struck over 75 kilometers off uh, of the island. But this time, the tremor was clearly felt across Incheon and parts of Gyeonggi, as well as Gangwon province, with level 4 seismic intensity being felt in Incheon. Now, Korea uses a 12-level intensity scale, and in level 4, most people can feel the tremor, and it's strong enough to wake a person from sleep or have windows shaking and things dropping off of shelves. Level 3 intensity was reported across Gyeonggi and Seoul, and in that level, the tremor can be felt inside an unmoving vehicle. According to various reports, some residents in Seoul's Dobong district felt the tremor despite being 100 kilometers away from the epicenter. Many residents uh, woke up abruptly to the sound of disaster alerts, which uh, rang in just nine seconds since the quake was detected. Authorities say that if an alert is issued within 10 seconds since the initial detection, it can reduce deaths by up to 90 percent by guiding people to escape to safe areas. Although the magnitude was later revised down from initial notification of 4.0, authorities did a pretty uh, impressive job given that it occurred after midnight. Authorities advise people to stay under a table uh, for protection and close gas valves and shut down electricity and promptly go outside to open spaces when the tremor halts. Yeah, I think again, uh, when uh, earthquakes like this, like 3.7 uh, again is not a big quake compared to some of uh, other major earthquakes that we've seen uh, happen in other parts of uh, the world, including uh, Japan. Uh, but again, when it's so rare uh, for many of the residents, it certainly would have been uh, a very scary moment for them. And I think a lot of things might have uh, went through their heads. I think some people were saying, I was reading somewhere that uh, uh, because of the tensions on the Korean Peninsula and how North Korea seems to be also sending drones over to like the Incheon area, they thought uh, maybe if it was like a nuclear weapons test or something that, you know, 
because aftershocks are felt. Uh, but these earthquakes are felt in, in, in many parts near uh, Korea. I remember, uh, was it about two years ago, there was an earthquake, a mini earthquake uh, in Kangwondo. Live on the show, the, the, the studio here uh, started shaking. And I remember it was, I was about to just about to close the show off. I was doing my uh, final thoughts and it started shaking. And uh, yeah, that's what happens when uh, we're such in uh, close proximity. Uh, proximity. But uh, luckily, again, uh, no injuries, no casualty, none of that happening there. In the meantime, though, another thing that we're watching out for here, South Korea issuing an alert this morning morning over a possible U.S. satellite crash. Uh, let's have them tell us about this. Sure. The South Korean Science Ministry warned that a retired U.S. satellite could possibly fall on the Korean Peninsula and its vicinities between 12.20 and 1.20 p.m. today. Is the Earth Radiation Buzzes Satellite, or ERBS, launched in 1984, and it was expected to fall to Earth after completing its mission for several decades to study how the Earth absorbed and radiated energy from the Sun. The ministry issued a readiness alert at 7 a.m. today and convened a contingency meeting to respond to the expected return of NASA's retired satellite. Although it's about 2,450 kilograms, the majority of the satellite was expected to burn up upon entering the atmosphere. However, as some components could survive the process and reach the surface, the ministry asked Korean people to remain cautious about their possible fallings and ban the departure of any flight during the estimated crash time. NASA earlier estimated the odds of inflicting injury on a human, human being at 1 in 9,400. According to the ministry's latest announcement, the satellite passed over the Korean peninsula this afternoon, and no damage has been reported so far. And later, the U.S. Air Force will make an official announcement on the exact location and time of the falling. Yeah, again, I mean, something that I was uh, watching very closely uh, today and uh Anytime, again, you might be saying one in 1,400. Uh, maybe some people will say, well, that's uh, you know, highly unlikely. But I mean, to me, uh, when you're talking about something as big as that, one in 9,400 is still a pretty good uh, you know, statistic here that it might fall. But uh, considering uh, we didn't have any kind of news uh, that uh, caused any damages or injuries to anybody here on the Korean Peninsula, I guess uh, it's, sa it's safe right now. I believe, was it last year or maybe the year before that, there was uh, uh, some news about a Chinese satellite that was supposed to fall and it was supposed to fall in the proximity of uh, the Korean Peninsula as well. But that also, uh, we were able to escape. But I uh, can't believe this stuff happens all the time in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, uh, let's talk COVID-19. Uh, the COVID-19 situation finally uh, appears to be stabilizing here with daily infections uh, dropping to the lowest level in over two months. Critically ill patients also staying within manageable levels as well. Talon, does this mean that we may be able to see the indoor mask mandates lifted soon? Well, the government has earlier said that when two of the four key COVID-19 indices come down to stable levels, it will adjust indoor mask wearing guidelines from mandatory to recommended. And recent tallies show that the time is ripe to 
to lift the indoor mask restriction. The four conditions the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency laid out, if you remember, were A, manageable levels of daily new infections, B, decreasing number of severe cases and deaths, C, enough beds and medical professionals to treat COVID patients at hospitals and clinics, and D, high vaccination rate among high-risk groups. And two of those conditions have now been met for the removal of indoor mask mandate. Daily infections dropped to the lowest level in two months, adding around 19,000 today, while around 520 are in critical condition, with hospital bed occupancy rate remaining below 40%. We saw 35 deaths overnight with a 0.1% fatality rate. So if this trend continues for one more week, we're highly likely to see the indoor mask mandate be lifted before the Lunar New Year holiday begins. Top infectious disease expert and advisor to the government, Chong Gi-suk, said that if the number of COVID cases and critically ill patients continue to fall, health authorities will discuss lifting the indoor mask mandate and adjusted measures will likely be announced around the New Year holidays. But there's a huge risk that may get in the way, and that's rising number of imported cases centering around people arriving from China. Over 100 imported cases were reported today, nearly 70% of which streamed in from China. Now, Sepom will have more details on this, but we're seeing one in five or one in seven travelers from China testing positive upon arrival despite the pre-flight negative test result requirement imposed earlier this month. The designated facilities to accommodate confirmed patients at airports and nearby areas are filling up fast. Well, we're also seeing quite a few loopholes in handling COVID-infected travelers from China. And there's also the concern of possible spread of new variants that have been confirmed uh, in the neighboring country. And there's also other lingering risks, such as low vaccination rate of bivalent boosters among high-risk groups. The rate among the elderly still remains at just a around 30 percent, way below a target range of 50 percent. That's right. Uh, It's kind of interesting because uh, if you've noticed uh, over the past uh, three years almost that we've been uh, wearing these masks, I've always been wearing black masks. I've uh, finally ran out of my face mask right now. And uh, I'm wearing whatever's left over in the trunk of my car at this time. And so I'm contemplating whether or not I need to order more masks or not, because now we have to think about uh, whether or not they're, they're going to be lifting these indoor measures. But just like Talon said, I mean, the big concern is uh, not just the increasing number of uh, travelers coming in from China that have been found uh, testing positive for COVID-19, but the, uh, the the variants that are popping up, right? We, we talked about the XBB variants, uh, which apparently uh, might be uh, immune to the bivalent vaccines that are coming out. They're saying that it might even be more transmissible. And so we can't really base it on the Monday figures that we're seeing today, although it is, again, the lowest in about two months. Uh, we'll have to see what kind of figures we'll see today, uh, tomorrow, uh, and Wednesday as well. Uh, but speaking of the travel measures against uh, those that are coming in from China. It's been five days that uh, South Korea implement these quarantine measures for travelers from China. Um, again, I mean, the, the the positivity rate is really fluctuating. I mean, Tan said uh, one in five, one in seven travelers were getting, you know, this number, that number, uh, and said that the positive rate, again, I mean, it's fluctuating on a daily basis here. Sebum, tell us more about this. Sure. In response to a massive surge of COVID-19 cases in China, the South Korea 
Korean government recently decided to require all travelers from China to present a negative COVID-19 test result. And it turned out that the positive result rate was 3.9% yesterday. According to the Central Disease Control headquarters today, 180 short-term travelers out of the 934 people from China received PCR tests at Incheon International Airport, and seven of them tested positive. If you look at the accumulated positive rates of short-term travelers from China, it's about 20% or 365 out of 1,823 people. It's about one in five people. Positive results rates of inbound travelers from China rose from 19.7% on the 2nd of this month when it became mandatory for people from China to receive a PCR test at Incheon Airport to 26.5% and 31.4% on the 3rd and 4th, respectively. Then, starting from the 5th, when it became mandatory for travelers from China to submit a negative test result before embarking for Korea, positive result rate started to significantly fluctuate from 12.6% to 23.5%, 14.8%, and 3.9% yesterday. Although we may need some time to observe the trend, Jung Gi-seok, head of the COVID-19 special response team, said that the COVID situation in China has reached its peak. And given that the BA1, uh, I'm sorry, BA5 subvariant dominates COVID cases in China, we can respond to the inflow of positive cases from China by utilizing BA4 and 5 vaccines. However, as the accumulated positive rates recorded at 20%, the Korean government will maintain quarantine measures for inbound travelers from China until the COVID situation in China gets better. That's right. So, I mean, it's obviously scientifically, if you're going to be requiring these uh, COVID-19 tests, negative COVID-19 test results before coming into South Korea, you're going to have less people who are coming in with positive uh, numbers, uh, but even with that, we're seeing people come in testing positive with the uh, PCR test at the Incheon International Airport. But if again we're seeing the vast majority of uh, the infected travelers from China are coming in with BA5 subvariants, I guess it's not as a big concern. But there have been reports, although the Chinese government is denying this as well, that the, the XBB uh, variant, and I forgot what's the other one, the BQ1.5, I think that's the other one, uh, that they found in like Shanghai and stuff like that. Uh, they're saying that's also dominating the area. But again, China, uh, the Chinese government uh, denying such uh, facts right now. If that starts coming in more into South Korea, that's going to be a big concern. But I think as long as we have these uh, negative test results before coming into Korea, in effect, I think uh, we should be able to block off the vast num- uh, number of uh, travelers with COVID-19 because, I mean, even before the Chinese traveler, the travelers from China uh, came into South Korea, we still had imported cases, and I think we we're uh, doing a pretty good job with this. Uh, nevertheless, uh, let's move on to some domestic politics news this time. It's only been a few weeks since we saw a major clash between the two rival parties over the 2023 budget bill, but uh, we're in for another storm of political wrangling at the National Assembly again. Uh, this time, uh, over a wide range of issues. Uh, Tan, uh, give us a look at what they're uh, 
uh, fighting about this time? Sure. The main opposition Democratic Party, with its control over the National Assembly, convened an extraordinary session that began today. 169 members of the party required the session last Friday, which automatically opened the session as currently a provisional session requires the consent of only about one-fourth of National Assembly members, or 75 of the 300 members. And it looks like we're in for another intense clash between the DP and the ruling People Power Party over a wide range of issues, including North Korea's drone infiltration, state probe into the Itaewon crowd crush, uh, Democratic Party Chief Lee Jae-myung's bribery allegations surrounding Sungnam's football club, as well as other economic policies. The ruling PPP upped uh, verbal attacks on DP, saying the party convened the session to shield Lee Jae-myung from arrest, with floor leader Chu Ho-young questioning the time of the parliamentary gathering. Lawmakers are immune from arrest while the parliament is in session. They can still be arrested if the National Assembly gives consent to the arrest. But as you know, the DP has enough power to refuse to give such consent with more than a majority of the parliamentary seats. Prior to the session, PPP spokesperson Chang Dong-hyuk said Lee Jae-myung may evade arrest with a shield called uh, with the uh, January Extraordinary Session, but will not be able to evade investigation or indictment. He added that the moment uh, the Democratic Party chooses to go with the crime, it is giving up going with the people. DP floor leader Park Kong-gun, meanwhile, said that it's the National Assembly's urgent task to address the national security crisis on behalf of the people and hold officials responsible for lax response to North Korea's latest drone provocation. And as widely expected, the two parties locked horns from day one with uh, Park Kong-gun calling for an inquiry of the government uh, to hold the administration's senior security officials accountable. He also urged uh, the PPP to fulfill its duty and promptly pass bills related to people's livelihoods, such as the one on extending the basic freight rate system for truckers. The PPP, as expected, accused the DP of attempting to protect party leader Lee Jae-myung from indictment by abusing lawmakers' immunity from arrest. It also slammed the DP for suggesting that uh, classified military information be disclosed during the plenary session, arguing that such confidential information should instead be discussed behind closed doors by the Parliamentary Defense Committee. We're going to talk more about uh, former presidential candidate and DP chair Lee Jae-myung this time. Uh, he's going to be questioned by the prosecution on Tuesday over this uh, bribe allegations uh, involving uh, the Sungnam FC football club uh, years ago. This would be the first time that he would appear for questioning by the prosecutors uh, since he was elected as the DP chairman back in August of last year. So let's get the details of this. All right. According to DP spokesperson An Ho-young, Lee Jae-myung, the leader of the main opposition Democratic Party, will comply with the prosecution's summons and appear at the Suwon District Prosecutor's Office's Sungnam branch at 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. And he will be questioned on allegations that he had received uh, bribes from several companies through the Sungnam FC football club while he served as the city's mayor. It's said that Lee left his schedule empty over the weekend to prepare for the questioning. 
with his lawyers, including the one recently hired, Lee Jae-myung, reviewed expected questions from the prosecution and facts that were clarified during the past police investigation. He is expected to be accompanied by up to two attorneys and DP leadership and speak a few words about his position at the photo line instead of just entering the prosecution's office without a word. Lee is also planning to refute all claims raised by the prosecution by holding a press conference before the Luna New Year holiday or Seollal to better take advantage of public opinion during the holiday when families gather around. So I think... Maybe some of our listeners might be confused as to why in the world uh, Lee Jae-myung is mired in this uh, bribery allegation with a football club. It's because uh, Songnam FC, before they used to be called uh, uh, Songnam Ilwa Chanma, and uh, that was run by, I believe, uh, the Unification Church, I believe. And uh, they basically, I, I think they said, uh, you know, we don't want to run this football club anymore. There was no buyers. And usually... Uh, when there is no buyers for a professional team uh, here in Korea, uh, the city basically takes uh, takes over, which is why, like, even with, um, at one point, the heroes, now we have the Kium heroes, uh, they used to be called the Seoul heroes at one point. Uh, many of the football clubs are run like that, which is why I believe, like, Taejeon, Taejeon's football club is like called Taejeon Citizens because it's run by the city. And so Sungnam FC uh, was run by the city after Sungnam Irwa Chanma uh, basically said, we, we don't want this team anymore. And so by and large, uh, basically the head of the football club is then the mayor of Sungnam City, who then was uh, Lee Jae-myung. And the allegation is that uh, the all the advertisements that go into the football club stadium and th- things like that, that was kind of a front uh, for bribery. Uh, for Lee Jae-myung is what's going on. And so hopefully this uh, kind of clears out some of the confusions as to why Lee Jae-myung is mired in this uh, allegations through Sungnam FC football club here. Uh, in the meantime, the presidential office reportedly keeping the door open for communications with uh, North Korean rights activists, uh, namely the North Korea defector groups. Tan, well, what's this about? Well, according to Yonhap News Agency, the top office held meetings with North Korean human rights activists last year and will keep its communication channel open to the group. Last year, the presidential office held a meeting with members of Fighters for Free North Korea upon their request, uh, which is in contrast to the previous Moon administration, which did not recognize North Korean defector groups as such, shutting down all communication channels with them. The top office said that holding talks with those groups can be interpreted as part of President Yoon's efforts to improve the dire human rights situation in North Korea. Uh, President Yoon promised during his presidential campaign to work with the international community to enhance North Korea's human rights situation, while also including the launch of a North Korean Human Rights Foundation as uh, one of the administration's national policy tasks. Now, the issue was brought to light after President Yoon ordered top military officials to consider suspending the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement should North Korea forge ahead with one more territorial intrusion. Now, once the agreement is suspended, the government is unlikely to punish North Korean defector groups against 
flying propaganda leaflets across the border aimed at informing North Koreans of the brutality of their regime. Experts have repeatedly said that information is one of the things that the North Korean regime fears the most. So it's quite obvious what will happen to already tense inter-Korean relations should the leaflets begin to cross the border again. Uh, So we can see why the news, uh, this piece of uh, news is making headlines today. Mm -hmm. And there's what's called an Inter-Korean Relations Development Act. And under this law, flying leaflets or broadcasting loudspeakers about the North Korean regime can face up to three years of prison sentence and a fine of up to 30 million won. But the government is now reviewing whether this rule can also be suspended along with the 2018 military So this, uh, the leaflets, uh, the sending of the leaflets and the the loudspeakers, uh, like it's controversial in many ways. And uh, some people might be going, well, who might be the ones that are most against? Yes, North Korea would be most against this as well. Uh, But the other big concern was, I believe, the residents in the border uh, towns. We're talking about the South Korean residents in the border towns, right? Because they were fearing that if these uh, balloon leaflets are being sent over, and North Korea gets really upset, there might be a clash in that border mm-hmm. area. And so it's the South Korean citizens living in those border towns that were very afraid of it and calling for these, uh, you know, the, the leaflet, uh, the, the movements or whatever you might want to call it to, to, to be, you know, stopped and things like that. Um, but again, I mean, there, there might be a good chance that this might be suspended now because uh, the government is looking into even suspending the 2018 military pact, which also uh, could be quite controversial as some people are saying that this is exactly what North Korea wants. They want South Korea to be the first because North Korea has already kind of breached the agreement on so many different occasions, mm-hmm. but they've never made it you know, verbally uh, said that uh, you know we're suspending it and stuff like right. that. And if South Korea ends up suspending, they go, aha, there you go. You guys were the first to suspend this, and now we can do anything. And uh, this might cause more tensions on the Korean Peninsula, is what a lot of people are fearing here. Uh, nevertheless, let's move on to other issues. A senior U.S. State Department official uh, arriving in Seoul today to discuss various issues with his uh, Korean counterparts, including uh, Ido Hoon. This to talk about supply chains and the Inflation Reduction Act. Sebum, tell us about uh, what, what they're going to be discussing during his trip. Sure. Jose Fernandez, the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment, is scheduled to arrive in Seoul today to have discussions on a range of bilateral economic issues. His visit to Korea is especially meaningful because he is the first senior U.S. official to visit Seoul this year, which marks the 70th anniversary of the South Korea-U.S. alliance. Establishing the South Korea-U.S. Economic and Technology Alliance is regarded as an essential part to pursue the global comprehensive strategic alliance between the two countries. Tomorrow morning, he plans to uh, meet Lee Do-hun, Seoul's second vice foreign minister, and discuss bilateral economic cooperation. It's been around one month since they met with each other at the 7th Senior Economic Dialogue in Washington, D.C., Back then, they adopted a joint statement on strengthening the resilience of supply chains, strengthening joint research and development of emerging and core technologies, and deepening coordination on investment screenings and export controls. 
This time, they are expected to review some progress of the joint statement, especially focusing on strengthening supply chain resilience and easing discriminatory provisions for Korean-made electric vehicles in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. The two sides are also expected to hold a joint press conference following their meeting. Fernandez will also meet U.S. and South Korean business leaders and hold a roundtable on women in business with the American Chamber of Commerce. After his stay in South Korea, he is scheduled to fly to Japan on the 11th. Yeah, again, I mean, as uh, time passes, I think there's more and more people who are kind of uh, pessimistic uh, in regards to the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, I mean, I think the South Korean side is... The best that they're asking for is a grace period of three years and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, basically saying that uh, we'll be able to build these uh, factories in three years. So give us that uh, grace period. But uh, it doesn't seem like Washington is moving that way as well, not to mention all the EU countries. Kind of the the response to um, meetings with like EU leaders and the response to South Korea has been very different, which has been very frustrating for all of us. Uh, here in South Korea. But uh, the most important thing is they con- they're continuing on with these talks and uh, hopefully through this, uh, we'll, we'll have some kind of solution here. Uh, we're going to go over to the United States. Uh, <laughs> the U.S. Congress I saw a chaotic start to their House of Representatives, to say the least. Uh, I've, I've lost track after about nine uh, <laughs> rounds of voting, to be honest with you. I don't know if you guys saw pictures and footages of what happened uh, during the, uh, the, the voting session, but there were basically congressmen, uh, they brought their novels, uh, they brought their uh, tablet PCs, and they brought, they were basically reading because they, nothing was going on. Now, after 15 rounds of voting, Kevin McCarthy is finally the House Speaker. Uh, this is the longest speaker election since the American Civil War. Uh, that's that's in the 18, uh, that's 1812, I think it was. Uh, Tom, now that they have a speaker, uh, what's next for the Republicans? Well, he may have uh, finally uh, become the speaker, but if the first week of the 118th Congress has been any indication, Speaker McCarthy is going to have many adventures at the helm of the House's new Republican majority, according to various local news outlets. His term is expected to last two years, but one of the concessions he negotiated to secure the speaker's job makes it relatively easy for even one member of the House to call for a vote to replace him. And according to CNN, on top of the risk that a single member can call for a vote to topple him at any time, McCarthy has empowered what CNN calls extremists who could alienate mainstream America and in 2024 endanger the tiny new GOP majority that was built on flipping formerly Democratic seats in states like New York and California. Other media outlets focused on the fact that McCarthy accepted much of the hardline conservatives' demands, which in turn will lead to an unprecedented level of attacks on the Biden administration. First and foremost, the GOP is all revved up to institute a new select committee to investigate the investigators. Under the agreement McCarthy brokered with hardline conservatives, a new subcommittee will be formed under the control of prominent House Freedom Caucus to launch an investigation into what they call 
the weaponization of government agencies, including the FBI, against conservatives. Now, this comes as uh, Republicans were fueled by anger over the federal law enforcement investigation into a number of scandals involving former President Donald Trump, uh, including his mishandling, alleged mishandling of confidential documents. Other issues at hand include immigration law, abortion, and the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, with a focus not on electric vehicles, as South Korea hopes, but with a focus on budgetary support for the IRS, or Internal Revenue Service. Now, although the Democrats retained control of the Senate, the new Congress will be a pivotal test for President Biden on whether he can outmaneuver the Republicans while appeasing Democratic supporters. Uh, according to the Washington Post, the White House is seeing uh, seeking a recalibrated strategy for navigating the next two years uh, that will seek to temper potentially explosive clashes with bipartisan cooperation and an aggressive promotion of uh, President Biden's legislative accomplishments. I just want to make a uh, quick correction on the Civil War day. It wasn't 1812. Uh, it was 1861 to 1865. So a little bit uh, after 1812 that I said it. U.S. Well, history. the point is it was a very long time It was, it was time a very ago. long time. And uh, U.S. <laughs> history was not my forte. I liked history, but U.S. history was not my forte here. Uh, let's talk about what's going on or what went on in Brazil. Uh, actually, not too long ago, uh, January 6th uh, was actually the two years uh, since uh, Trump supporters basically uh, ransacked uh, the U.S. Capitol. And of course, uh, there was there's still a lot of people going to jail for that, by the way. And then you have something that's similar happening over in Brazil because hundreds of supporters of far-right ex-president Jair Bolsonaro, who, by the way, interestingly, uh, was nicknamed the Brazilian Donald Trump, uh, stormed the Congress, the presidential palace, the Supreme Court as well. Sebom, tell us what's behind this and how did the administration respond to this attack? Sure. On Sunday, hundreds of supporters of far-right ex-president Jair Bolsonaro stormed the Congress, the presidential palace, and the Supreme Court, known as Brasilia's Three Powers Square. Protesters dressed in the green and yellow of the national flag invaded the Congress building and committed vandalism. They also climbed up to the top of the roof and unfolded a banner with the word intervention to instigate a military coup. After making all-out chaos in the Congress building, they moved to the presidential palace and the Supreme Court and continued their act of vandalism. The police were deployed to disperse the crowds, but they were outnumbered by the demonstrators. Current President Lula remained safe since he was in the southeastern city of Araraquara, recently hit by severe floods. Uh, as SJ just mentioned, what is noteworthy is that this incident was almost the same as the January 6, 2021 invasion of the U.S. Capitol building by then-President Donald Trump's supporters. Ever since Lula narrowly won the runoff by the score of 50.9% to 49.1%, hardline Bolsonaro supporters have been protesting outside army bases, calling for a military intervention to stop Lula from taking power. About this unprecedented incident that took place only a week later since Lula took office, he condemned it as a fascist attack and said that protesters will be brought down with the full force of the law.
He also hinted at the possibility of holding ex-president Bolsonaro responsible since he made a few speeches that can be interpreted to encourage such attacks. According to the local media TV Globo, the Brazilian authorities regained control of the three powers square in the evening yesterday, and the capital's public security chief, Anderson Torres, was fired for uh, failing to control the situation. Look at that. The possibility of holding ex-president Bolsonaro responsible since he made some speeches that uh, could be interpreted to encourage such attacks. Uh, Same thing that, of course, uh, former President uh, Donald Trump uh, is going through as well. Uh, Interesting thing with this is, again, uh, Bolsonaro has yet to uh, admit his defeat and uh, i believe it was like last week or two weeks ago when uh, lula president lula was officially sworn in uh traditionally what's supposed to happen is the the former president hands over the sash uh, mm-hmm. over to the new president and uh, bolsonaro went to florida he basically said i'm not even in the country i'm not even taking part of this uh and he called it a, a vacation or something like that but it was basically his way of going i'm not going to be anywhere near a, an event where i'm handing over a sash and giving power to someone who i believe i didn't lose the presidential election to and so it is it is shocking and i can't believe uh stuff like this happens where the citizens basically uh you're, you're basically attacking the government here right yeah. uh nevertheless guys thank you very much for your reports today have a safe rest of the night and we'll See you guys again. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.